the last rose of summer left blooming all alone. All her lovely companions are faded and gone. No Reflect back her blushes and give sigh for sigh. I'll not leave thee, thou lone one, to pine on the stem since the lovely. Ellen Hutchins, Ireland's first female botanist, was born in seventeen eighty five and died in 1815, aged only 29. In the eight years from 1805 to 1813, she built an outstanding reputation for her ability to collect, recognize, and illustrate some of the most difficult plant species, and she made significant contributions to scientific knowledge. At the Ellen Hutchins Festival, This year and last year, we've been exploring Ellen's development as a botanist through her correspondence with one of the preeminent botanists of the day, Dawson Turner of Yarmouth in England. Those letters also revealed the growing friendship between Ellen and Dawson, with the sign-off starting initially as very stiff and formal, I remain your obedient servant and phrases like that, But by the end of the correspondence, Ellen was signing off, yours most affectionately. We are thrilled that for this year's production of Seaweed and Sealing Wax, we're joined by the poet, Laura McKenna, who's been inspired by Ellen's life and work to create a special body of poems. As with previous productions, the part of Ellen is read by writer, actor, director, and dramatist Karen Minahan, who's also responsible for the overall organization and production of the text. Madeline Hutchins, Ellen's great-great-grandniece, will join us at the end to share some background to the letters that Ellen wrote and more details of her life. And I am your MC, Fanola Finlay. Last year, for Seaweed and Sealing Wax 1, which, by the way, is available in the shop at ellenhutchins.com, we concentrated on the letters that Ellen Hutchins and Dawson Turner exchanged in 1811, which was 210 years ago last year. We looked at her excitement over her botanical discoveries and collecting activities and at the pleasure she gained from her correspondence with Dawson and indeed with others, as she was one of the important collectors in the large network upon which botanists depended in the early 19th century, as the field was expanding and plants were being ordered into genera and species. Now, we move forward a year to 1812. Ellen is turning 27, unmarried, living at home in Ballylicky, and very occupied with the care of her mother and her disabled brother Tom, and with running the household. 
On many days, her domestic duties left her little time and energy for getting out onto her beloved hills. Living far from like-minded company, she found her purpose in the mountains and the sea around her and the riches they yielded to her curious eyes. She expresses this beautifully to Dawson in a letter of October 14th. I am pleased to find that Mrs. Turner was well enough to enjoy the pleasures of a visit with you to such a place as Mr. Coke's. The pictures and books must delight almost anybody. I fear if you were dazzled, I should have been quite blinded and would no longer have even a short-sighted eye to spy out a little younger manier in our own dear mountains. I have just turned my head about and it strikes me that few collections can present a sweeter landscape than that of this moment before my eyes. Few could unite more grandeur and softness, more variety of shape and colour. What rich, soft, vivid and fading greens are at this moment before me. Blue mountains, brown hills and green swells surround this little spot, the bay opposite, and a pretty mountain river at one side. Our landscape is the best of our country. For the little society it does afford is not such as has many charms for the mind. We want to focus this year on Ellen's skill at botanical illustration and the true scientific nature of her mind. Through her letters and Dawson Turner's, we learn much about her ability to produce detailed drawings, which are acknowledged to be of extraordinarily high quality. But as in previous years, in 1812, there's also the issue of her health and the health of her mother. So, Ellen, tell us how things were with you that winter. January the 30th, 1812. At length, my dear sir, I am able to begin a long letter. Indeed, I know not how to thank you sufficiently for all the letters I have lately had from you. The friendship that produced them, I hope I feel as I ought though I have been for some time past unable to make you any answer to letters that were almost the only pleasures I have had, certainly the most unmixed with pain. I felt their value at all times great to me, but peculiarly so at a time when I had nothing but sickness and suffering about me. Now, thank God, we are all better. My mother's health, which is the most material to my happiness of anything in this world, is rather better than I could have expected, she is at all times weak and nervous, but when she recovers from a severe attack and seems so revived as to enjoy what passes around, I feel as if she was growing young again and may yet live many years with us. Hope, I believe, sometimes carries me beyond what is reasonable to expect. All my family lived to great ages and were young people at 60 or 70. I am better than I have been, though I have bile and headache from confinement. The weather is now delightfully soft. The birds sing, the sun shines, and I feel as if summer was come. As soon as I get rid of a cough that torments me, I shall go out a little every day. I am now particularly anxious to collect lichens for you. My last short letter was quite as little satisfactory to you as to me, but it was all I could do at the time and felt that you would be uneasy at not hearing that I was alive. I have at length sent a large parcel for you to Mr Mackay. He will, I hope, afford it without delay. And in the spring, Ellen, did it get any better? May 20th. If I were to tell you, my dear sir, 
or the causes of my long silence, I should send you a sheet full of pains and troubles. As they are almost all relieved, I shall try to think no longer of them and set about repairing the losses they have caused me. How are you? How is Mrs. Turner and her girls? And particularly, how is my little girl? Ellen, hold on. My little girl? I think we'd better explain that one to the audience. In 1811, the year before, Dawson Turner had called his latest daughter Ellen and had asked Ellen Hutchins to be the godmother of the baby. Ellen was elated at what she felt was an honour and a way of connecting her to the Turner family. This was important as it provided a mantle of propriety to what had become, in effect, a friendship between a married man and a single woman outside his family. Many of Ellen's letters contain inquiries after little Ellen, her goddaughter. Answer faithfully all these questions and never think of making any apology for leaving others unanswered. I am getting quite strong again and began the day before yesterday to take long walks. The weather is now inexpressibly delightful. To breathe the fresh air is the greatest enjoyment. I have just brought in young Exisa and I think a young specimen of J. Execta, neither of which I had before. Young refers to young Armania. These are a genus of leafy liverworts. Liverworts are non-vascular plants that reproduce through spores, like mosses, and that require wet environments. She supplied specimens to several botanists. June 6th. I have only time to say thank you for all your kindness. The specimens of American mosses I have got quite safe. They are quite a treasure. How can I sufficiently thank you for dividing your specimens when you had so little? I am better very much, indeed quite strong again, but I had a desperate attack of bilious colic, and then, when I was relieved from that, had toothache that kept me awake and prevented me from getting strength. And by July, Ellen, how were you feeling then? July 1st. My dear sir, though I can hardly hold my pen after the fatigue of yesterday's excursion and have much to do this morning, I cannot resist the gratification it gives me to tell you of my pleasures and to enclose part of my treasures. This correspondence had started in the first place because Ellen had been asked to supply specimens to Dawson as he was engaged in the monumental work of writing his multi-volume book on fuci, or the brown seaweeds. Dawson had several collectors supplying him with plants, but Ellen had developed a formidable reputation because she truly understood what she was looking at. She could distinguish between common and rare plants, and she understood how to illustrate them to show the important points of difference. July 13th, 1812. I never will again, my dear sir, Promise myself the pleasure of writing to you at any particular time or of visiting the mountains. I have been so frequently disappointed in both. Your kindness will do me the justice to believe that I could not neglect anything that might afford you the least pleasure without regret. My time is now so entirely occupied with minute domestic concerns and, I may add, troubles, that I have little leisure and less spirit to attend to anything amusing. 
I seldom have an hour that I can call all my own, except early in the mornings and at night after I settle my mother to sleep, when I walk out to enjoy in silence and solitude the delightful softness of the night, either by the seashore or by the river. Here I recover my spirits, or rather become calm after the agitations of the day. I will jump in here to say that the domestic troubles that Ellen referred to revolved around a dispute between her brothers. It was serious, and it affected everyone around her. August 18th. I am very glad to learn that Mrs. Turner and all your family are so well and that little Ellen is so interesting a baby. She is just now at a most interesting age. How I should like to see her and all of you, but it must not be... I should not like the idea of leaving the world without seeing you happy with all your family about you, but when I can have such a pleasure I cannot even think. I am as much bound to home as if I had ten children to take care of. My mother is ever weak and extremely nervous and cannot do without me for two days at a time and beside the care of her. I have a great many other employments that weary me at times to depress my spirits. My health, though at times affected, bears up better than I expect. If I had not been formed with great strength, I should have been exhausted long ago. I never was very lively, but of late I am quite stupid and go on in the dullest way possible, doing whatever is necessary but without any enjoyment, except when I can at night or early morning steal an hour or two to read or when I can take a ramble in the mountains, which is seldom the case. But when I can go out, I enjoy a walk much more than those who can go out at all times. Ellen, and women like her, were doing amazing work. Botany was one field in which their contributions were acknowledged. Ellen, if you'd been a man, none of those domestic duties would have been expected of you. Tell us a little more about how it was for you at this time. December 16th. My dear sir, though I am very ill indeed, I cannot delay to thank you for your kind letter. Your kindness at all times gives me so much pleasure that to express my grateful feelings is one of the very few things that interests me so strongly as to tempt me to write a letter in the state I am in. I am very glad you can neither see or hear me. My cough is so severe that I make everybody in the house uneasy. Yet I have so often been very ill in the same way that I look forward to getting better when mild weather comes. I am unable to make any active exertion, To walk up and down stairs is painful, and my mother's weak health obliges me to exert myself beyond my strength. What we're seeing here is a hint of what's to come for Ellen. Her health is starting to break down under the strain of her domestic concerns and what's going on in her family. Within a year, she has lost her home in Ballylicky. Her brother Emmanuel has taken possession of the house and Ellen and her mother have moved to Bandon to seek medical help. I have a little sketch more highly magnified than the former ones of F. Capillaris to send in my next letter. I really am not able to overturn the things in my portfolio to look for it. I am so faint from coughing incessantly and from want of sleep. All I can do is to turn over the leaves of a book, for I cannot call it reading or do a little needlework when my head does not ache violently. Oh, last season, I could not draw or do anything that I wished. 
The only drawing I did for the whole year was a basket of roses on velvet to give to a friend whom I am not likely to see again as a gage d'amitié. I hope for more leisure soon and think I shall be able to draw a great deal next spring and summer, having got rid of some troublesome affairs that plagued me all last season. Doing the conferve for you will gratify me much. It's my great pleasure now to introduce Laura McKenna. Laura is a writer of fiction and poetry and worked for many years as a child psychiatrist. Her debut novel, Words to Shape My Name, won widespread critical praise and was shortlisted for several prizes. Her poetry has been published widely. Laura participated in our online event two years ago, and I was struck then by how unique and fresh her voice is, and how her understanding of and sympathy for Ellen's life and work shines in her poems, and how she responds to Ellen's own words in her poetry. Laura McKenna. Thank you, Fanola. I'm delighted to read from some of my poems, which have been inspired by the life and letters of Ellen Hutchins and indeed the landscape she works in. I find she's been really inspirational for my creative work. And this involves both her attention and the focus she brought to the scientific pursuits and, of course, her writing in the letters, which I found really sympathetic and moving, that kind of sharing of interests that she had with Dawson Turner and the humour that was displayed. So I'm going to begin with a poem that was inspired by a line in her correspondence when she told Dawson Turner, I am in the very agonies of going to the mountains. And I think this reflects the kind of excitement she felt. So I'm just reading a section from what's a longer poem. And I'll begin with number two, Ellen on the hunt. Her feet know the ground below, the skid of stones, bounce of grass, the give of bog, the joy of muck. Filtering out the familiar, she notices difference is a pointed arrow to the unknown, has an instinct for odd places, out-of-the-way places, confluence of conditions where moss may thrive, a hornwort live, a lichen survive. An old brambled lime kiln, a mill stream at Donmark, pools in the lawn, fox's den at Laharn, a hawthorn by the lake, a cavern by Curragh Maid. 3. On a wet day, she will relish the taste of salt on her lips, there above the distant sea, the mountain's armour plates darkening, gleam of hidden ridges, the slow seep of grey light on the crouched spine of Hungry Hill. On a dry day, she will breathe the honeyed air, lie among sedges, marvel at a spider's web, hammocked in gorse, its muslin funnel, a lure for curious flies. She will note the pink streaks on an orchid's three-lobed lip, the golden blaze of asphodel torches among their ghostly ancestors, the translucent pallor of bog pimpernel. She will look up at the blue of sky, let the silence fill with wings, beetles and butterflies, stone chats and pipits. 
This next poem is inspired by a line that Ellen wrote to Dawson Turner when she was finishing a painting for him, but was clearly somewhat tired. So she said she'd do it before my heart and fingers cool. And this poem is called Blue. I will smooth this brush through cakes of paint, render again the shore's velvet horn in Van Dyke brown, sap green, capture a siphoned featherweed in flesh red. This daily palette so unchanging, all sodden shades, the body's desperate leakages, gallstone yellow, arterial red, my tongue longs for Prussian blue. The only colour yet to feel the stroke of sable, the laden brush, blue is everything other. I will mix this wetted tip in azure, taste the edge of cobalt, heart of ultramarine. I will dream the searing flash of kingfisher, tumble of speedwell, milkwort and devil's bit. Blue, my becoming and my loss. I am the powdered bloom of mould on bread, a brooding blue bottle trailing unloved eggs. This next poem is inspired by an element of the um, correspondence where Dawson was particularly keen to get a sample from Ellen of Pinguicula lusitanica, which is also called pale butterwort. I try not to say that word too much because it's hard to pronounce. Um, and Ellen wrote to him telling him, Pinguicula lusitanica is a very elegant little plant, she said. So this poem is called To See Pale Butterwort in September Bog. You must first get down on your knees. Feel the soak of water through vitreous moss. Listen to moistness under shoe through splay of fingers. Part the grass with care as a child's soft hair. And there, tender-winged, the palely nodding head, barely held, a stalk so ready crushed, you look back at the path to this discovery and know the cost. Thank you, Laura. Ellen was a talented illustrator of her botanical specimens. Now, this was incredibly important because seaweeds especially dried up when you tried to preserve them, and sometimes they just turned into unrecognizable scraps. Ellen used her microscope to observe the fine details of the plants. It was exacting work, and it was often done in poor light, but she was brilliant at it. In the case of Fucus tomentosus, she was the first botanist to observe and illustrate the fruits of this seaweed. And this was tremendously exciting for Turner as he was trying to come up with a classification system for the fuci. Within a Linnaean ordering system, the differences between species depended on the reproductive parts of the plants, the flowers and the fruits. This created difficulties in dealing with non-flowering plants, the cryptogams, such as mosses, lichens, ferns, liverworts, and crucially, seaweeds. So Ellen's discovery, as well as her illustration of it, was highly significant. The letters we will read now are from an earlier time in Ellen and Dawson's correspondence, because by 1812, she was already too burdened to concentrate on providing illustrations. 27th of July, 1808. I had great pleasure in finding Fucus tomentosus with fruit 
I enclose a fragment to show you how beautiful it is in that state. I have got some laid out on glass that will, I hope, enable you to see its manner of growth. And I started little capsules, but fearing that drying may alter its appearance, I have attempted to draw it as it appeared when recent. 8th of October, 1808. I am very glad you were pleased with seeing the fruit of Fucus tomentosus. I shall, with great pleasure, when I am a little better, attempt to draw the whole plant for you. The only objection I could possibly have to doing it is that of not being able, for want of practice, to execute it well. 2nd of December, 1808. Dear Sir, your most interesting letter found me employed finishing the drawing you wished of Fucus tomentosus. I have sent it with drawings of some confervae. You must not expect very much from me, for, alas, my trembling hand has not the ease which marks security to please. These are the very first that I have attempted. Turner's response was very gratifying, praising her execution of the drawing and announcing that he was having it engraved. He also asked her to include pencil sketches in her letters, as these conveyed, quote, a better idea than the most laboured description. Engraving, of course, in those days was the only way of mass-producing an image. It took incredible skill and talent to take a sketch or watercolour and laboriously engrave it on copper plate using a sharp point. Dawson Turner's wife Mary and several of their daughters had become expert in the technique and produced hundreds of engravings for Turner although he turned to professionals for illustrations for his Fusai volumes. 4th of September, 1809. I have been drawing all our confervae, as many of Dilwyn's plates seem to me very inaccurate. In many of them, the manner of growth of the complete species is ill-represented. His magnified parts are more accurate. Of those of our Fusai that I am able to judge of, Dasphilus, Califormis and Clavellosa only seem ill-represented. I have pretty good drawings of each of those species. Would you like to get copies? I think, too, that the natural size of F. Griffith's eye is not very good. This demonstrates Ellen's growing confidence as a botanical artist. She knew she could create accurate drawings, and she was able to criticise imperfect ones when she saw them. Note her comment on the size of plants. One of the things she'd observed was that plants in Ireland were larger than their equivalents in Britain. Dawson's response, predictably, was to ask her for more and more. He called it begging by wholesale. But he added, Believe me, however, I would not do it to a person I less esteem. I'm going to remember that line for the next time I want something from someone. But he also made it clear that her sketches were going to be very useful to him as he worked on the fusai. Her response shows how willing she was to do what he requested. 14th of September, 1809. I shall very soon copy the drawings of the Rivulariae that I have and send them to you. Should you desire to have drawings of any of the plants that you know to grow on this shore, pray let me hear that I may have the pleasure of doing them for you. 9th of October, 1809. My dear sir, I have just washed the pencil that finished drawing Fucus Californus. Before my heart and fingers cool, I shall send it with the few other drawings this little parcel contains for you. Though the Rivulariae are not ready to go with them as I intended, they shall soon follow. 
I hope most warmly that the little I now send may give you pleasure. Before my heart and fingers cool? Ellen, Ellen, be careful now. This is a married man, surrounded by beautiful, talented and educated women, all focused on supporting his interests. Oh, he has a way with him, no doubt about it, that makes people want to please him. And you are alone and isolated. I want to tell you to guard your heart a little. But in the end, you've discovered a soul friend. And that, as you say yourself, is the only source of joy in your life. So instead of being cautious and formal, enjoy what this man is bringing into your life. I expect soon to send you some new conferva, fresh water species. There are some very delicate ones growing near me, but until I get a new microscope I have just sent for, I cannot draw them. I now greatly regret that I had not a better microscope to do the rivulariae for you. Next year, I will do them as highly magnified as I am able, and I shall very soon send you copies of the drawings. I have now done the natural sizes. I hope you will think them good. Several more letters from Turner refer to her drawings, including great praise for her asparagoides. You can see that drawing for yourself on the Ellen Hutchins website shop. You will marvel at the intricacy of it. In one letter, he says to her, I can truly say I do not know how to thank you for the drawings as I ought to do. I never saw any equally beautiful nor had I before any idea of the plants they represent. For the rivulariae, as you know, suffer more by pressure than any other family of algae and never afterwards recover as they ought to do. If I have your permission, I shall give your plants to Dr. Smith to be published in English Botany, or else, when you oblige me with drawings of them, I will make them the subject of a paper myself for the Linnaean transaction. Wow, praise indeed. Dr. Smith, by the way, is a reference to James Edward Smith, the founder of the Linnaean Society and the principal author of the multi-volume English Botany. January the 5th, 1810. How shall I thank you, my dear sir, for your kind wish to gratify me by writing as soon as my little parcel arrived and for the pleasure your letter gave me? Its arrival on New Year's Day I take as a good omen and sincerely wish that this and many succeeding years may be productive of peace and health to you and those on whom your happiness depends. That you like the drawings is a great pleasure. Wherever you see any defect, pray tell me that I may do better copies for you. I am not myself satisfied with the magnified parts of the rivulariae, but now that I have a better microscope... If I can live till next season, you shall have much better magnified bits, and I shall, I hope, be able to make some observations on the fruit, which seems to me not of the same nature with that of Conferva gelatinosa. Think, my dear sir, what a feast it was to have all those plans to examine and compose in one day. The impression it made and the reflections it produced I shall never forget. The day or two after I received your letter, I sent off a parcel containing drawings of nine confervae not described in Dilwyn's. If you like to describe them, I shall be very much pleased and hope you will add number 13, which has no resemblance to C. Hookera. It is not, I believe, sufficiently magnified. 
15th of September, 1810. The mosses from you and the young from Mr. Hooker were highly acceptable, as well as the drawing of C. Siriubessens, which is in a very strange state and quite unlike any conjugata I have ever seen. But talk not of wonders until you see a sketch of the conjugation of C. Decilians. I will send it in my next, which shall be very soon. I spent five days examining it, and I am certain I sketched as I saw. It's my pleasure now to again invite Laura McKenna to read more of her wonderful Ellen poems. When reading about Ellen, I came across a book called A Popular History of British Seaweeds, um, which came out in 1857. And in it, the writer, David Lansborough, puts in a piece called Mr Thwaites' Preparation, um, instructions on how to prepare seaweed samples. So this is a found poem from that piece. Pleasure arising in the pursuit, the excitement of hope, no life taken, no blood shed. A newly buried beauty under the waves, betwixt the rocks, is easily caught or exposed, wide-mouthed, cast out by the sea, and carried home at ebb tide. Spread out for fine taste and delicate manipulation after cleansing. A graceful form is best affected by the quill of a porcupine or the point of a silver fruit knife. Cover with a fold of muslin, a screw press would bruise. Try three weights of stone. They will not cling without touching each other. The next poem um, is inspired by another line from Ellen to Dawson Turner when she was feeling very ill. And she wrote to him asking him, send me a moss, anything just to look at. So the poem's called Moss. She sees beyond the limits of her eyes, her intimate gaze more penetrating than her borrowed microscope. She looks, stays looking, absorbed in seeing a forest of green rosettes, red stems, and lowermost the decomposing parts holding up the rest. She knows the music of moss, the notes of pressure and release, listens to the soak of it, the spring of tiny leaves, the gap before a breathy sigh. She has almost heard its little caps explode a pop of smoky spores. Her hands sense history in its depths, memory layered in darkness, long years since the woman of Drumkara last plaited her hair, laid or was lain in a bog like this, her daily efforts forgotten, her remains plucked apart and wandered over briefly, her life, like moss, a sacrifice for the next. This next poem um, is inspired by Ellen's line to Dawson Turner regarding the death of a neighbour. She says, Of such troubles men know little. It always falls to women to attend the dead. So this poem is called Attending the Dead. After the priest has departed, prayers said, oils bestowed on hands and head, last rites for the dead, are a bar of soap, a basin of water, stripping off garments to prepare for the after, washing and turning the once beloved or feared, 
or merely known to greet hello from up the road. Worn hands, capable hands, intimate contact of flannel and lavender. This last touch, for some, is also the kindest. Brushing, the hands linger now, smoothing hair off the face, patting it in place, a cheek softly stroked, lids drawn down over unseeing eyes, a soft sigh. The Sunday suit, the formal dress, the shoes not worn for years, a collar tweaked, cuffs turned, hands on hands folded over, palmed in pose of prayer, a book, a rosary, the final touch. This last poem was inspired by the correspondence between Dawson Turner and Ellen Hutchins at a time when Ellen was very ill. And he wrote to her in a very poignant fashion and said to her, preserve yourself with care, I beseech you. And the poem is called Self-Preservation. How might she do it? Pressed between sheets of blotting paper or pinned wingless and silent under glass. She could lie among apples in a straw-line box or with parsnips nestled in sawdust. She could hide from the cold under a cloche, nesting in a bed of freshest moss. So many ways. Cured in the smokehouse, laid out in the icehouse or soaked in a barrel of brine. Candied, jellied, pickled or potted, or fixed in a gobbet of fat. But no, not that, not after all. She will seal herself like a precious seed in yellow beeswax, bring to him scent of honey, spiced pollen and warm cedar. In 1810, Dawson sends Ellen an etching done by his wife Mary to show her, as he says, that they are always thinking about her. Later that year comes a very surprising request indeed, and this letter, perhaps more than anything else in their correspondence, reveals how highly Turner esteemed Ellen as a scientific botanist. He'd been struggling with the task of creating an order for seaweeds. This was the ultimate aim of his research, and he was finding it overwhelmingly difficult. In fact, it was the cause of a long delay in the publication of his final volume. Looking at the vast collection before him, he just couldn't find his way into a clear organization of the genera and species. He wrote to her, I cannot help wishing to put it off as long as I can, in the full persuasion of my own inability to do it satisfactorily, and indeed, being a great skeptic, how far such processes, as we call genera, have existence in nature. Is this a subject to which you have ever turned your attention? If you have, you will in the highest degree oblige and serve me by a communication of your ideas. Tell me how to distribute the British species, and I shall have such a foundation as I can easily build my system upon. Ellen responded and offered some suggestions, posing them more as questions for Dawson to consider. It was quite a remarkable response, as it showed that she had indeed been thinking of what the order of the genera might be. 
Here are some selections from a much longer letter she wrote to him. Your letter, my dear sir, should not have lain so long unanswered had I been well enough to write. The day after it came, I went to see a small whale that was killed in the bay at some distance from me and got a wetting and severe cold. This, with other things, has prevented my writing. The bay has been all summer full of whales. They came in after herrings and sprats. One was driven by a storm into a shallow place and killed by the country people. I find that it is Belena boops. I got fine specimens of Lepus balinaris on its fins and was greatly pleased to see this ugly creature. It gave some idea of the nature of these immense creatures, though it was only 32 feet long, the mouth 8 feet long and the tail 10 feet across. I was very near many of them alive in summer, but had no idea of their shape from what I could see in the water. It was amusing to see them swim about in all directions spouting water. The people here do not remember to have seen them up the bay until last year, but at the mouth of the bay they are frequently seen. You ask me if I have ever thought on the arrangement of the submersed algae. I used to amuse myself with conjecturing what your future arrangement may be, but found it a subject greatly beyond my power of seeing into, and that one day's experience generally contradicted that of the former. My views must be very confused, and my opinion of little value. Yet, as you ask me, I venture to tell you what I have thought, supposing that even the conjectures of a person who is out of the way of being prejudiced by other people's opinions may interest you, and that if I have chance to see any part of your system, it would give you pleasure. I imagine that you will unite in one genus, all the fuci that bear embedded tubercles, with pores on the surface. In another genus, those that bear capsules on their frond or in cilia attached to it, as purpuracens confervoides. Is not the fruit of Fucus rotundus, Griffithsia, and perhaps Placatus of the same nature? Fucus lumbricalis seems to stand alone, as well as Fucus rubens. Will you form a genus of those with seeds on the surface of the frond, as Fucus bulbosus, Saccharinus and palmatus? What can be done with Fucus edulis? Its fruit seems to be tubercles placed between the two skins of which the frond is composed. The seeds seem to be dispersed within the frond. Those plants of which I have sent you drawings as rivulariae seem to form with Conferva gelatinosa and Rivularia endififola a very natural assemblage. But how can Fucus tomentosus and Bursa be separated from them unless the jointed structure be taken into consideration? Believe me ever most faithfully, Yours, Ellen Hutchins, Ballylicky, November the 9th, 1810. I feel half ashamed to send you this long letter, which can, I am satisfied, be of no use to you. Pray, tell me of anything else I can do. Your letters are always missent to Bawtry, and no other English letters that I get go there. It delays yours. So, Ellen, you weren't just supplying specimens for others to analyse. You were a true scientist, already mentally engaged in the work of organizing the genera. I love especially how you say, the conjectures of a person who is out of the way of being prejudiced by other people's opinions. It shows that you understood very well how easily groupthink can occur among scientists, long before most, and let's face it, male scientists, had figured this out and called it confirmation bias. 
We don't know how Dawson responded to her thoughts, but we do know that he also asked her to list all the plants that she had found, and she agreed. This was a monumental task. There were well over a thousand, and we still have that list. The 11th of November, 1811. The list of our plants is begun, and now that we are all so much better, shall be very soon finished and sent to you with a parcel of specimens and some drawings. We're going to wind up by coming back to 1812. A last word about the importance of good illustrations. October the 14th, 1812. Pray, I beg you to thank Mr. Hooker for his last letter and for the engraving of J. Turneri and the specimens he sent. I am quite delighted with the engraving. The plant is an elegant little thing. She has done justice to its beauty. I am greatly gratified at one of mine being named after you. The last extract we've chosen is a poignant one. It shows us what a solitary life Ellen was leading, but how important her relationship with Dawson had become in supporting her spirits and providing her with a stimulating and meaningful contact with the outside world. August 18th, 1812. I cannot find anybody who knows how to enjoy walks and health. If I were to express my feelings, I should be laughed at, so that my pleasures are very solitary, as well as my troubles. I keep them locked up in my heart. You were very kind, and seem, I know not how, to have learned so much of my mind to know what would be the most agreeable thing in the world to my taste when you wish me to be able to enjoy your books. I am too far from you to enjoy all your kindness, but every day feel some of it. Yours ever, E. H. It is my privilege now to introduce Madeline Hutchins. Madeline is Ellen's great-great-grandniece and one of the founders of the Ellen Hutchins Festival. Madeline. I am Madeline Hutchins. I'm one of the organisers of the annual Ellen Hutchins Festival Bantry, which takes place in August during Heritage Week. The festival started in 2015 on the bicentenary of Ellen's death, 1815. The festival celebrates Ellen's achievements and encourages people to connect with botany and nature and there is an Ellen Hutchins website with information about Ellen and botany in West Cork and Ireland. I'm also Ellen's great-great-grandniece, descended from her youngest brother, Sam. My family, my father Richard in particular, told me about my relative who was a botanist. But it wasn't until about the year 2000 that we realised how significant a botanist Ellen was and that she was Ireland's first female botanist. The most significant step in rediscovering Ellen's story was an occasional paper from the National Botanic Garden, Glasnevin, written by Professor Michael Mitchell of NUI Galway. From this, we found out about the correspondence between Ellen and Dawson Turner. My father became passionate about telling Ellen's story and revisiting her plant list. In 2012, while I was sorting belongings from an aunt who had died some years before, I found in a super-value carrier bag one of Ellen's drawings of seaweed and over 50 letters she wrote to two of her brothers. Since then, from cupboards and corners in family homes, we have discovered books that belonged to Ellen, 
including ones we believe were sent to her by Dawson Turner, and notes created by one of her nieces when writing a memoir about Ellen. My father died in early 2013, aged 97 and three quarters, but he knew that I was on the case of Ellen's story. In preparation for the first Ellen Hutchins Festival in 2015, I began transcribing Ellen's letters to her brothers, and I visited the archives in Kew Gardens and the Wren Library at Trinity College, Cambridge, where the Ellen Dawson letters are held. I photographed and transcribed some of those that Professor Mitchell had not covered. Ellen's handwriting is not easy. The ink has faded, and sometimes she overwrote or cross-hatched the letters. Here, having filled the sheet, she turned it sideways and wrote over the first page of text. Some of the letters from Dawson Turner have bits missing, probably where mice have nibbled the paper. Ellen's letters to her youngest brother, Sam, can be a delight, giving us information about her character as well as telling us more about her home life. We also hear about what she calls her botanising in her own words. Ellen was a highly talented botanist and botanical artist. She was passionate about plants and sharing knowledge about them to enable us to understand them better. Her legacy is significant. She contributed to developing our knowledge of the non-flowering plants. In 2022, there was an important next step in the story of Ellen's legacy when the Environmental Research Institute at University College Cork renamed its headquarters Aros Ellen Hutchins, the Ellen Hutchins Building, in recognition of her contribution to botany and science and because she is a valuable role model encouraging young women and girls to take up a career in these subjects. The Ellen Hutchins Reading Room there houses the festival's Ellen Hutchins Archives Cabinet that shows some of Ellen's letters to her brothers, a few of her books and the family-owned drawing of a seaweed. Do take a look at the website, ellenhutchins.com, to see more about Ellen, her letters and the botany of Bantry Bay. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to celebrate Ellen and her world. For all things Ellen, do take a look at our website, ellenhutchins.com.